And my first experience with the John Madden video game was 1993. And uh, I'll never forget the first tackling sound I heard, which is <laughs> There's one sound. And then the audibles are always my favorites. Blue, blue, red! This is the best of BYU Sports Nation. Interviews and insight from this week in Cougar Sports. Every Saturday, only on BYU Radio. To lead off, here's the double coverage interview of the week. Our absolute pleasure now to bring in Harvey Unga, who was kind enough to join us with some of his precious time off after the football season, but for good reason, to discuss Tyler Algier and what he just left in terms of a legacy at BYU. Harvey, first of all, Merry Belated Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. Likewise, Merry Belated and Happy New Year to you guys. Now, I know that part of your New Year's resolution is going to be keeping things rolling for BYU football in that running backs room, but... You may have heard you got some big shoes to fill with Tyler Algier declaring for the NFL draft. So let's talk about Tyler and what he did at BYU. We just gave our opinions on where his season ranks among the all-time great seasons of BYU football. You said recently in a tweet you believe he's the best running back ever to come through here. Why is that that you feel that Tyler Algier might just have been the best to ever run the ball at BYU? Well, and I know I'm sure everyone, they've all got their own reasons and their own opinions, but um, you, you take into consideration the things he did over the last two years, especially this last season, um, and then knowing that he still could have two more years to to play. Um, and I know I'm like, you're, everyone can say what if, what if, what if, but um, – to me, I don't think they're like, if he were to stay two years, I don't know if there's a record he wouldn't break. And I don't, I don't know if there's any, I don't know if that those records may ever be broken. Um, if he were to stay the next two years, in my opinion. Um, so for that reason, I mean, that's one of them, but also to see what he did this year um, and not just against some G5 teams or, you know, some not I, I don't want to say not really good teams but um because call anywhere in college football these you know the kids are talented they're you know you're gonna get everyone's best game and and we we've seen that numerous times um i've seen it playing and coaching um but to see what he did against those power five schools um to me it i don't know if there were or have been any other backs. I know Jamal had done it a few times, but I don't know if he'd done it against the number of P5 schools that Tyler did um, and had done it consistently. Um, so that that was another reason why I had brought that to the table. But the other part, too, was to me, Tyler's, he's still so raw, um, just, just coaching him, that had he stayed next season, I feel like there was still things for him to learn and for him that he could improve on. Um, both running wise and and in the past game, um, so th- those are a few reasons why um, I, I feel like Tyler, yeah, Tyler would be the the best, or is the best back the, uh, to come through the school. Well, and and I want to go back to something that you just talked about. You had mentioned, you know, the the teams 
that BYU faced this year. And I think we saw this last year with Zach Wilson where people wanted to discount what he did and the numbers he put up because of the competition. And, and last year with what Tyler did in a great year, you know, to a certain extent they wanted to do the same thing. How satisfying was it for you? Because you see these guys every day and you know what, how much work goes into it. How satisfying was it for him to be able to have this season, like you said, against arguably BYU's toughest schedule ever, so that nobody can take away just how good he was? Yeah, I mean, I like for that reason, it's, I shoot, I can't even express how thankful and how grateful and how satisfying it was for him to go out there and, and you know, prove it week week in, week out. He's um and, and like you said, people can say whatever they want to say about last season, and, and it is what it is, but um, for him to follow up and not just do well, but, you know, supersede what I think anybody's expectations were from last season um, was, man, that was so just gratifying, and, and um, I'm just more grateful than anything. Harvey, you mentioned that Tyler is still in some ways raw. And that's crazy because he was so good, but yet you feel like he can improve in some categories, and certainly the NFL will help him do that in a hurry. As it stands right yeah. now with Tyler's current skill set and where he can still improve, where does he fit in the NFL draft, in your opinion? Um, so... It's it's kind of tough. That's that's a tough question. Just because this this draft is a little tricky, just because of how um, really saturated it is due to COVID. Um, you've got the seniors, I guess the the normal seniors from this year, but also the super seniors from last year that are in this draft. So um, it, it's it's a little tricky. If it were, I guess you know any other normal draft, to me, and I'm that's hard for. You. It's hard for me to answer because I'm biased, but like knowing what I know and the potential that he has, and he had mentioned it too that the best of his football career is yet to come. Um, I I see him. I would take him as a late day one, early day two guy, if if I'm a team, to be honest. I realize, Harvey, that you're certainly not there to make decisions for guys. You're there to give them information and let them do what's best for them. But in a situation like right. this where a guy is considering, well, should I go pro, should I come back, what role do you take in helping them make that decision? So that's funny. That's, we, Ty and I and, and you know his family as well, too, we, we've had long discussions about this and um, – I've always told them that I, I will never tell them what to do. Um, I'm never going to, you know, ask them to stay, but I'm also not going to tell them to go. Um, just cause I, I, I don't feel like it's my place to do that. Um, more than anything, I'll, I pretty much just gave, give them the facts, the things that I know, um, the things that I've experienced. Um, and then, you know, kind of gave it on both sides, both the NFL perspective and then both, you know, staying in college and everything like that. So, um, really, that that was all I did for for Ty and, and his family was kind of gave him, you know, both sides of the spectrum, um, the realities of the NFL, um, and then you know where things could happen, where things couldn't happen, um, if he were to stay, how things could happen, how things couldn't happen. But um, I'll, I'll never 
like I said, I'll never tell them what to do or, or make that decision for them. That That's totally on them and their family. And, and I'll always support them no matter what. And I, they know that I, I, you know, I don't ever want to come in between, um, any of these players and their families and their decisions and everything like that. Cause that's, that's not my job. I'm, I'm here to, to coach them and mentor them and help them. But at the end of the day, it's, it's their life and it's their choice. And I'll always support them no matter what. What can you tell us uh, about conversations you've had with some of the NFL scouts? How do they view Tyler in the NFL? Um, you know, there's a, it's a broad spectrum to be honest. Like it all depends on the team um, with their running back depth. Um, and, and a lot of times there's the hype of certain players, um, that for whatever reason, um, I don't know, they, they, they seem to bump up in the draft class and, and it, to me, there's, there's certain players that I think get hyped up and are just, they're, they're okay. But then there's other players, um, for instance, like Tyler, who may not get all the hype and stuff from ESPN or, or whoever it is. Um, but to me, deserve that hype and, and deserve, you know, the, the praise and, and the, the credit. And, and um, I I don't really I don't understand or, or know how everything um, goes in for draft day. I'm, I'm not a GM and I don't I don't fully, you know, have a grasp on those kinds of things. But um, the things I go off of are, are obviously, you know, after I'm done, we play teams in college and I get feedback from, you know, the coaches that we just played against and majority of them, like, you know, they, they give me that kind of um, insight onto what they think about Ty and what, you know, things he could work on, but he shouldn't, I mean, for the things that will help him, you know, get to that next level. And a lot of them, you know, mentioned that he's definitely an NFL guy and, and, um, it's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of hard. I, I don't fully understand everything that goes into it, but like I said, I'm probably biased. So. <laughs> Understandably. We all are. We're talking with BYU yeah. running backs coach Harvey Unga, one of the best to ever run the ball at BYU yourself, and so you're in an interesting position because, Harvey, we just reviewed some of your numbers earlier in the show, and, uh, you know, we, we feel like certainly you are one of the best to ever do it. So being in your position and wanting Tyler to succeed, what's the best bit of advice you can offer to Tyler right now as he transitions into the NFL to help him prepare for what's about to happen? Um, just honestly, the biggest thing for him, I think, is, is just con- continue to, to – Do everything the way that you're doing it. Don't don't try to be somebody you're not. Don't don't change um, don't change your run game or your run style um, because you think that this is what so and so wants to see, or you think that the scouts or the GMs want to see this. Like um, to me, the biggest thing like do what got you to where you're at. Continue to perfect your craft in that way, but also at the same time like you know, develop, you know, the things that you may lack. Um, but a lot of times I've seen it where guys, they feel like, you know, so-and-so said, I can't do this. So, you know, on pro day, they try to do things out of their element to try to showcase a certain skill and stuff. And, and sometimes it hurts them. Um, but 
to me, I think if, if Tyler just continues to, you know, improve on little things here and there, but continue to keep the main focus, you know, on, on his, the way he runs the ball and, and how aggressive and how strong and, and how physical and his speed, um, you know, I think that'll, that'll help him more than anything. Everything else will, will fall into place. And the other part, I hope he, I don't want him to go into this thing shell shocked when he, you know, when he's there because he belongs there. And I've seen that in numerous times and I'm guilty of it too. Um, I had gone into, when I went to Chicago, first guy I met over there was um, Brian Erlacher. And to me, I'm like, you know, I walked through the weight room and, and he actually um, called out to me and, and, you know, he yelled my name Harvey when I was walking through my head. I'm like, he's not calling me. There's no way. <laughs> so I just keep walking and and he keeps yelling at me. He's like, Harvey. And so I'm like, oh, he is. So I, I look back and I'm, you know, I'm kind of shell shocked and everything. Um, but that kind of stuff, it, it was cool because he came and, you know, he welcomed me and everything like that. And a part of me, I was still like fanboying him and looking like, holy cow, man, this guy just said what's up to me. But in reality, like that's my teammate. Um, and I should have, you know, I've, like I said, I was more of like a little kid just walking around just in awe of everything. But um, I don't want him to go into the league and, and feel that way. Like I want him to go in there and make sure, you know, he knows he belongs there and that, you know, he's, he's there to, you know, prove himself and, and continue to just, you know, kind of start where he left off from over here. All right, Harvey, let's finish with this. Now the question of questions is how do you fill the void that Tyler Algier leaves in the running back's room? You've got some guys for sure. Miles Davis is a guy yeah. that you and the coaches are high on but got nicked up in fall camp. Jackson McChesney, Hinkley Ropati, you get Lopini Katoa back for some of that senior leadership. So who's the guy that's going to step in and fill those shoes for Tyler Algier? Um, I'll, I'll fill the void the same way I filled it the first time. Um, I, I've told all the boys, like, this is nobody's position, um, you know, for now. Like, it, it's it's anyone. Anyone can, can win the position. Um, and they know that. They know how we work in our room. And, and nothing's ever given to anybody. Um, I've told Beanie that. I've told McChesney that. I've told all of them that. They, they all know. And... You know, I'm, I'm grateful for every single one of these guys in my room because they, they know it. They've they've all addressed it, and, and they said, yeah, we're not, you know, we're not looking for anything, Coach. We'll, we'll earn it the same way that we've always done it. Um, so, I, you know, same way we did with Tyler and, and Beanie, and, and, you know, when I first got into this position, I'm not I'm not giving it to anybody until they, you know, they prove themselves and they, they earn it. Um, obviously, you know, Beanie's got the experience and whatnot, but – even he knows. I've told him numerous times. Like, there's, there's going to be guys in the room that step their game up and that are going to push him to his limits. And I expect out of all of them, I want them all to do that. Especially, you know, like you said with Miles Davis, Mason Fakuhu. Like, there's a bunch of young guys that are hungry, and and um, you know, I'm 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 excited for it, and I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, who uh, who steps up to the plate, and and I'm sure. Any one of those guys can, and we've we've seen it, you know, over the last two years where guys have stepped up and fill in. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm expecting any one of these guys to, you know, fill those shoes, and 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 they all know that they're capable of it, and they all know that they can. And I, uh, 
I got to do my job and, and coach them up and, and get them get them ready. That was one of our favorite interviews this week. You're listening to the best of BYU Sports Nation. This is the best of BYU Sports Nation on BYU Radio. BYU men's basketball 12-3 and through the non-conference portion of the schedule. Hey, 12 wins in 15 games considering everything the Cougars yes. went through. Losing Richard Harward minutes into game number one, then losing Gavin Baxter against Utah Valley. And just finding a way to piece together these well, wins. Playing they multiple played, lineups along the way. Played without Gideon George, who got sick. Last night, BYU plays without Spencer Johnson and Seneca Knight. I mean, it's been... There has been so much attrition. And that's why Mark Pope told me last night in the post-game interview I did with him, I'm just so proud of the way that these guys have figured it out. They play defense and they rebound, Jason. They've won a lot of games ugly, but who cares? They're winning the yes. games. And they're a projected nine seed in the NCAA tournament, according to Joe Lenardi. They have a net of number 30. They're 27 in the Ken Palm rating. So now that BYU has finished non-conference play with everything we just talked about, all of those bits of adversity and attrition, how have your expectations for the Cougars shifted in terms of where they fit in the West Coast Conference? I, I don't think that they have. I, I think the only thing that's changed, and you alluded to it a second ago, is maybe how they win the games. I, I don't expect anything to change in terms of the order that that the teams will finish in the West Coast Conference. I still expect BYU to be number two right behind Gonzaga. That's where I expect them. So And it hasn't changed because to what you said, look, they, they've been winning games differently, but they're still winning these games. And I don't think that that changes in the West Coast Conference. BYU currently with five Quadrant 2 victories, three losses. They're 5-0 and against Quadrant 3 and 4 teams, so no bad losses. With the way that teams have worked through the non-conference and the preseason, if you will, BYU currently has no Quad 1 games, wins or losses. Right. It has become eight Quadrant 2 games. Still very tough. A lot of those have happened away from the Marriott Center. BYU's most impressive wins are probably at Utah, at Weber State, San Diego State at home. Sorry, Utah State was in Provo. Uh, San Diego State in Provo as well. We'll see if that remains. Hopefully some of these teams that BYU beat can work their way into a quadrant one situation. And for the road wins, like Utah – Utah just has to be a top 75 team. So hopefully the Utes can get back in the top 75 because that's a quad one victory. But the point stands, Mark Pope doesn't lose to bad teams. And right. He doesn't lose back-to-back games, Jason. The Cougars, understandably, lost to a really good Creighton team, which was a de facto road game. The Utah Valley loss is still a head-scratcher, but four players had the flu. Gavin Baxter goes out early with the season-ending injury that kind of took the emotion out of the, uh, the BYU bench. But uh, the one that really stings is the Vanderbilt game. Like that, that one stings. I know it's a quad two loss, but that's where I thought BYU could still figure out a way to win. They had a lead late and they, and they didn't do what they have done. That's figure out a way to close out the game. So would like to see BYU 13 and two, but 12 and three, my goodness, that's great. As, as they transition into conference, the West Coast conference is better than I thought it was going to be. Well, and we've and we've heard coaches say that going into the season, they expected it to be, and it's played out that way. San Francisco apparently is pretty good. I know we've heard it before, but how many of the games are we going to see though? I yeah, how many teams? How many teams is BYU going to face? We don't know that right now. So I we're anticipating that BYU is going to play what sixteen games? Is that how many they play now with the altered West Coast Conference schedule? I believe that's correct. Right, because you only play two teams once. Yes, and you play. And one of, one of those, by the way, that BYU is only playing once is San Diego, 
which may actually be a good thing with all the issues San Diego has. Sure. And San Diego's at the bottom of the barrel. It's not going to help your metrics, so it doesn't really hurt. Will BYU be able to play Portland, another team that's well down the net rankings and well down the Ken Palm ratings? So I, I, I don't know. Let's say BYU plays, let's say they play 15 games in conference this year, which I, is probably ambitious. Okay, I thought BYU would only lose four games in conference. Maybe that goes to five now. Just because you don't have a big, like beating Gonzaga, that's probably two losses. Winning at St. Mary's, winning at San Francisco, winning at Santa Clara, like those are tough asks. And then does BYU let one slip at home? Uh, maybe four or five losses in conference, and BYU finishes with seven or eight losses overall in the season, but still a tournament team. It's so difficult to look down the road, not just because of the games, who, you know, what games are you going to play, but when you play these teams, who are they going to have? All of these things that we're, that we're dealing with in terms of the athletics world with COVID, yeah. it's not just are you going to play the game, but who's going to be on the floor? And I'm not talking about – I mean, that could be for BYU. That could be for the opponent as well. You just don't know who you're going to face. So it's so difficult to be able to look down the road and accurately gauge what you think is going to happen. Yeah. I projected six losses for BYU in the entire season leading into the West Coast Conference Tournament. That number's probably moved to seven. One more loss just because of not having available bodies and size in the post. But still, it's a great team. It's a really good team. It's a a solid unit that Mark Pope has, and they figured out a way to win And they're finding different ways to win games. And that's the ultimate end goal is to win games. Who cares? Who cares how you win? Just win it. They're winning them. The best of BYU Sports Nation will be back after this on BYU Radio. Get caught up in the week in Cougar Sports. This is the best of BYU Sports Nation. Tyler Algier, the topic of conversation once again. We'll talk with running backs coach Harvey Unga in about 10 minutes to hear what he thinks about Tyler's last season in 2021. Jason, it's time for us to lay out where we think Tyler Algier's 2021 campaign ranks all time for BYU. So, Jason, straight up, where would you put the 2021 season and what Tyler Algier did all time against some of those remarkable seasons that have happened in the past. I thoroughly enjoyed doing the research on this. This was a lot of fun for a couple of reasons. Number one, it was a great reminder of just how many fantastic running backs that BYU has had come Absolutely. through the program. And, and, and a lot of these guys have come within the last 20 to 25 years, which is really cool. Uh, but I, it was also great to have these memories come back to me. Like, oh, yeah, I remember that season. I remember that run in that season. Uh, for me... Tyler Algier's season, and let's, for those, let's just, let's just refresh. 2021, 1,601 yards, 23 touchdowns. Amazing. Uh, 5.8 yards per carry, okay. so almost six yards per carry. I have it as the number two season in BYU history from a running back. You have chosen wisely, Yes, Jason. I have it number two. Number one is, is Luke Staley, and it's Luke Staley's 2001 season where he had 1,582 yards, and I, I understand it may sound a little weird because we're saying that in the season in which Tyler Algier passed Luke Staley for the most yards in a season that he doesn't get the number one spot, I, I'm still going with Luke Staley and for a couple of reasons. He had one more touchdown, and that's not so much the reason. He had 24 touchdowns versus what Tyler had this year at 23. The, the biggest reason I'm giving it to Luke Staley, eight yards per carry he did it in 11 games jason eight we're talking about every time you gave the ball 
to Luke Staley, he basically got a first down every time you handed him the ball. Not throwing him the ball. No. Handing him the ball. So, so for me, Luke Staley's 2001 season is still the greatest year we have ever seen out of a running back. But a very close second was what we saw from Tyler Algier, which is absolutely remarkable. If you're kind of curious where some of the other seasons went, I had, I had Jamal Williams' 2016 season at number three. I had uh, Pete Van Valkenburg back in 1972. I had him uh, number four. Harvey Unga's 2007 season at number five. And then Curtis Brown in 2005, I had him as the sixth best season, season. for a running back at BYU. So that, that's kind of how I – this was a lot of fun to do. Yes, this is a different conversation than, say, okay – where do you rank Tyler Algier among the greatest running backs overall at BYU? We're just looking at individual seasons. I agree with you. Number two behind only Luke Staley, who won the Doak Walker Award yes. as the best running back in the entire country that season. The yards per carry, 8.03, is just insane. I know BYU didn't play a tough schedule in 2001, but again... What I just said, it shows that Luke played in 12 games. He didn't actually play in 12 games in 2001. He had to sit out a game because of a weird NCAA issue. BYU was worried about a compliance thing. So he sat out one game and then didn't play against Hawaii or in the bowl game against Louisville. Because of the injury against Mississippi State. And not surprisingly, BYU lost those two games and finished 12-2. and So Luke Staley put together his resume in 11 games, 1,582 yards, 24 touchdowns. I know, not the level of competition week in and week out that Tyler Algier faced, but I feel like Luke Staley, if he had the offensive line that Tyler Algier had this year against even the schedule, he would have done something similar, if not even better than Tyler Algier. He was that type of talent. Physical, speedy, they're similar in that regard, right? Very much so, very much so. So I still think Luke had the best season. Doak Walker Award only punctuates that. Tyler Algier, number two. And that's not to take anything away from what Psycho T did. Yeah. It is Psycho what he did against seven Power 5 teams. And he almost carried the entire walking wounded BYU team with so many starters out in that bowl game to a victory by himself. Well, And it was, it was the consistency, not just the consistency in terms of the production, but the consistency that game in and game out he was there. That's in in especially in this era that we're playing in, and I'm talking about the last two years with COVID. The fact that he was there and was available to play. Look, and I've talked about his breakaway speed. That that's the thing, and I think that's the thing that that he and Luke Staley both had at their size. Their speed was absolutely insane. Tyler Algier will shock a lot of people when he is laser timed on his NFL draft day because he did it in the spring twice. He was clocked at sub four 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 three nine forty laser timed. He's going to do it again. He will shock. With his size, the NFL scouts, of how much speed he has with that frame. At what point do you think that Tyler Algier would break away from you if you both started at the same time? (laughs) Three yards in? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. But would you still be wearing the maroon shorts because that plays a role in it? I learned I would actually wear something that, you know, was aerodynamic and have like And blue? And be indoor. And blue? Not outside running into a headwind. (laughs) Holy cow. So many excuses. 
Hey, don't, don't, don't. <laughs> Five, one, six, unofficial, Jason. Okay, okay settle Laser down. Laser timed. <laughs> but that's not important. This is the best of BYU Sports Nation on BYU Radio. The best of BYU Sports Nation collects our favorite conversations and brings them to you every Saturday. In 2013, former BYU men's basketball player Craig Cusick, a reserve guard, you know the game we're thinking about, right? Because you all witnessed it. He had a day he'll never forget. This is the story behind the story that led up to that shot. Deep Blue featuring Craig Cusick, presented by Brady Industries, Simply Better. He... From the time he could walk, he was his father's shadow. And his dad loved having him by his side. They were best friends. Some of the clearest memories I have with my dad are either in the basketball court at the farm or the nearby garden where we had horses, right? And we had a large garden as well. He needed wide open spaces and his horses, the handful of people that meant the most to him, he didn't need like much else. My parents found a way to always make sure and provide. And I look back on that and have obviously a lot of learnings that I try to now instill in my kids, right? So wonderful childhood, had all the opportunities in the world. I couldn't be more grateful for all of them. Out of high school, he was he was really good. And he, he had a, a few different places that he, he could have gone, but he ended up going to the U of U. Decided to go there as a walk-on. Had a great experience, great relationships there. He went on his mission with the assumption that when he came home, there would be a spot for him. But there was new coaching staff there. And so he took the path of slick. And with, I think it was only like on the second or third or fourth game, he was hurt. It's hard when you take a break like that and then get back to a sport and just hit the ground running. So come the end of that season, had a hard decision to make, right? Do I stay and do I continue to try to, you know, play one more year or do I move on? Do I go to BYU where I wanted to go to school anyway, right, where my dream was? He was told that he would never play Division One, and you don't tell Craig he will never do something because that lights a fire underneath him and he'll prove you wrong. He's the most determined soul. And at that point, I made a decision that I was going to go all in and, and go the unconventional path. And that next fall, my ankle had, you know, probably six to nine months to heal. Even though it's it's never been the same, you know, I went to walk on tryouts and made the team. He had reached a goal, I mean, that he had dreamed about. And there was only one point when I think he might have gotten a little down, discouraged that he wasn't getting a scholarship when he saw everyone else coming on, getting scholarships, and yet he was starting on some games. And he came to us, never complained, but at one point he said, I'm, I'm thinking I might throw in the towel. And his father and I just said to him, don't ever allow money to dictate your dreams, sweetheart. We will find a way. And we did. And I really think being a walk-on has been the greatest blessing because it's taught him so many lessons that he can teach his children. <laughs> that when you want something bad enough, it's, it's worth whatever you have to do to fulfill a dream. Going into my senior year, I, I had obviously personally and as a team, right, and as a group, we had a lot of optimism around what we could do and what we could accomplish. And 
you know, that time, right, my dad's health was very good, right? So we had a great season. I, I individually was having a pretty good season and I, I, I felt like I was contributing the way that I was supposed to, but we got to about the midpoint of the season. I remember it was in February. I had a game to play Utah State, right? And it was, it was the night of, of the Utah State game when, you know, my dad collapsed the night before the game. He had got up and I heard him down in the kitchen. And then I heard a thud. It's right there. And I ran down and called 911. And they came and they didn't seem to be really concerned. They said, take your time. But when I got to the emergency room, they said, just to be certain, we're gonna take him up for some x-rays made multiple trips back to the hospital right down the road to see my dad as we were trying to figure out what had happened. And, you know, long story short, they found a cancerous tumor right in my dad. And it was about an hour before the game that evening versus Utah State here at home when I found out that he had cancer. And it was pretty clear it was a serious form of pancreatic cancer. That was obviously a incredibly life-changing moment, not just for him, but for my whole family. Coach Rose was wonderful. He had told Craig he didn't need to suit up. And he said, that's the last thing my dad would let me do. And he talked to Craig a minute before he left for the game and just said, son, it's going to be a good night. On game day, everything's lockstep. It's code red from the moment you wake up, everything is patterned so it's exactly the same. It's reproducible every single game so that you can have a chance to perform at your highest level. And on this day, nothing felt right. All of our minds were somewhere else, grappling with this news, trying to feel for Craig. And then we got into this game and through this whole game, it was just frustration the entire game. Here's Cusick for three. That's too strong. Everything was different. I was in a funk, which is astonishing to me that Coach Rose kept me in the game at the end of the game. Just things didn't fit right until the very last second. Carlino for three. Off the front end, followed by Cusick. It's over. In one second is the buzzer sounds, and Craig Cusick hits that putback. It was just like the magic of sports, because sometimes sports take something that can never be made right, and just for a second, it makes it right for everybody. Like, life had just thrown our family, like, and my dad, its biggest punch, and that was Craig's response. And what that did for me through that process, it set the tone for the whole thing. Now, how many people could have done that? I would have missed. I guarantee it. <laughs> and it didn't fix, it didn't fix anything, but it gave us all a moment that was extraordinary. Craig gave us that because of the toughness that he has inside of him, that 100% he would tell you, every bit of that toughness came from his dad, who was his coach and his father and his best friend and his mentor. And it's, it's, it's one of the great moments in, in BYU basketball history.
Deep Blue with Craig Cusick, an emotional story, a fantastic one, so well told by Craig, his family, and Mark Pope. Yeah, remarkable. I, I will I will remember that shot uh, as long as I live. That's one that's it's imprinted right here. No question about it. The best of BYU Sports Nation will be back after this on BYU Radio. This is the best of BYU Sports Nation on BYU Radio. And joining us now over Zoom is the college basketball stats guru, Ken Pomeroy. His index factors heavily into the NCAA tournament selection process. We're always glad to have him. Ken, welcome back to the program. A belated Merry Christmas and an early Happy New Year to you. Likewise, fellas. Yeah, great to be on. Thanks for having me on again. College basketball season is in full swing. Uh, but before we get to the hard court and basketball, you're a man of many talents. We understand uh, as a former meteorologist, you can help us figure out some things like what in the world a snow squall is because a snow squall hit Utah. And I think everyone on social media was just trying to figure out how to define a squall. Like, wait can a you, minute. What's a snow squall? Can you help us define what a squall, a snow squall is? Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's just a, a quick burst of, of heavy snow, uh, usually associated with the, a lot of wind. So uh, kind of a unique feature. You know, it's not like one of these deals where it's going to snow for, you know, six or eight hours or something like that. You know, you get one or two hours of heavy snow. So it's a a brief inconvenience. And uh, and then after that, it's over. So uh, it was pretty cool. It's kind of a new a new type of warning in the in the weather world. But I think it was used pretty appropriate, appropriately around here the other day. I, I, w- I would uh, I would say so. Uh, let's go from uh, from predicting the weather to predicting uh, some <laughs> basketball. Uh, and right now, Not so B- quick. <laughs> <laughs> let's so so BYU right now, according to your rankings, coming in at number twenty seven. They've got a record of eleven and three. Wrapping up non conference play tonight against against Westminster. What do the numbers tell you about BYU so far this year? Well, they've been they've been pretty solid. I mean, this is kind of the the trademark of a Mark Pope team, it seems like, is that they're not, you know, they're not one of these lopsided teams that's great on one side of the ball or the other, or, you know, necessarily great in any particular category. They're just kind of a, you know, really solid uh, in a number of different areas. So, you know, the offense right now ranks 27th, the defense ranks 37th. Uh, so, you know, they're not necessarily great on either side of the ball, but they're very good. And then when you're very good in a lot of different things, you end up being a very good team. And I think that's, uh, you know, a, a, a safe, uh, observation about uh, who BYU is right now. Ken Pomeroy is with us on BYU Sports Nation. Let's discuss specifics and how you think BYU, according to the numbers, can improve based on what trends you're seeing early on. Where, where do you think that they can improve and will improve as the season progresses, Ken? Well, I think the one wild card for them going forward is the, is the three-point shooting. You know, people are obviously aware of Alex Barcelo and and how great he is in that particular area. Um, he's not necessarily a high volume three point shooter, but you know when he puts it up, it goes in a very high percentage of the time. It's just a matter of getting contributions from from other players in that area. Um, you know, that's where they've really struggled this year, and where the offense bogs down against good teams. It's where uh, you know defenses know they can pretty much help off just about anybody besides Barcelo and, and plug up that lane and make it difficult for BYU to to get buckets inside. So. 
you know, that's the area going forward where uh, I think they can improve. Like Tijon Lucas, you think, you know, he can he can do a little bit better than 32%. You know, the front line, obviously, Caleb Loner so far, two for 21. And he's not necessarily a great three-point shooter, but, you know, he's he's got to do better than that. Seneca Knight, nine for 33. Like, you know, you think there's some improvement there. So, you know, if one of those front line guys can start shooting the three, just, uh, you know, an average rate, a 30% rate, something like that, that'll be a big help to the offense and kind of uh, – allow for some more space for, you know, the backcourt guys to operate a little bit and, uh, and you know, hopefully improve the offense going forward. Ken, obviously one of the major storylines for this team this year has been the personnel issue down in the post with the five guys, whether it's Harward, um, you know, out with the cardiovascular issues, uh, you know, Gavin Baxter with the season-ending injury, BYU, and Mark Pope said this, like, we're never going to be the team that we thought we were going to be because we just don't have the same personnel uh, that we started the season with. How has BYU's big man situation changed this team, do you think? I don't know that it's had a, a huge, as big of an impact as you might think. I mean, obviously, you know, the depth up front is affected. And so, um, so that's an issue and, and the team has to play smaller. And I know there's been kind of a big deal made about that, but when you look at their defensive stats, you know, they haven't changed appreciably with those two guys out. Um, one of the reasons is, you know, Fus Traore is, uh, even though he's listed at six, six, he's, he's long and uh, he plays like quite a bit bigger. Like he's, turned out to be the, you know, the best rebounder on the team. Um, you know, the best shot blocker, not that these, you know, the Kembe Mutombo out there, but he does, you know, he does block some shots. He does protect the rim a little bit. Um, so, uh, so even though he's listed at six, six, he plays, he plays bigger than that. And, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, BYU fans are really going to enjoy watching him the rest of the year, watching him develop, um, you know, the guy has stepped in and, and, and really been good for them so far. So, um, so obviously the, the frontline loss is hurt and you, you know, you'd rather have those guys out there just to have more options. But so far, BYU has weathered that storm pretty well. Ken Pomeroy with us on BYU Sports Nation. It feels like for the last four years running, Ken, I've been hearing uh, this is the best the West Coast Conference has ever been. Seriously, running back to 2018, now we're into 2021, almost 2022. Hear it again. This is the best the West Coast Conference has ever been. Do your numbers back up that statement that this is truly the best WCC top to bottom we've ever seen? And just maybe there might be four teams from the WCC in the tournament. Yeah, it's certainly possible. Uh, so it depends, first of all, how you want to define you know, how good the, the conference is. It's a little different this year. Uh, you, so you do have the, the typical three at the top, you know, Gonzaga, BYU, St. Mary's. They're all, you know, kind of where they usually are. Uh, San Francisco has, has appeared to have joined the club and they're ranked 34th in my system right now, you know, finished non-conference at 13 and one don't necessarily have any super high quality wins in there, but they, you know, they've beaten a lot of good teams. Uh, so that would be your fourth team in the tournament. Theoretically. Um, the, the issue is like the bottom of the league is actually worse than it's been in the past. So instead mm -hmm. of having a whole bunch of teams in that 100 to 200 range, now we really don't have any Loyola is the only team ranked between 100 and 200. Um, in my ratings right now. Uh, and they've been a little bit disappointing. People thought they might be a tournament team this year. Uh, and then you got, you know, the bottom of the league, like Pepperdine has, has really struggled kind of replacing some losses from last year. Pacific hasn't been very good. Portland's improved, but they're improved from a team, you know, that uh, was the doormat last year and, and, and ditto for San Diego. So, um, so the league overall is probably about where it has been. If you just average all the teams, um, I think from a, you know, a, a glamor perspective nationally, they're going to look at those tournament teams. And so, um, so having four tournament teams will help. And I, I will say too, like the structure of the league probably also helps in getting four teams because, you know, those bottom teams being worse, I mean, there's less of a chance of a, of an upset during the season that might, you know, damage the tournament 
prospects running these four teams. So I'm not sure I'm on board with there being four teams. Like I think, you know, maybe San Francisco or, or St. Mary's might, might struggle and, and drop out of that group, but it's certainly possible. I mean, if there's ever going to be a year for four teams from the WCC, this is the year. Let's stay with the conference conversation and push it forward to 2023. I don't believe we've had you on the show since BYU made the announcement that they were going to the Big 12 starting in 2023. And and this obviously, you know, by most is looked at as is the best uh, college basketball conference, you know, in the country. I- I'm curious your thoughts uh, of this BYU program going and with some other really good basketball programs going into the Big 12 and how that looks in 2023. Yeah, you know, it looks pretty promising. When when they made that announcement, I kind of went back and, and ran the numbers on the past uh, five years or so, just looking at you know what would have happened if the the Big 12 had, had been composed of, of this new membership, where it would have ranked among conferences, and it still would have ranked first. You know, it, it had a run there of like six or seven years where, where it ranked first in my system. Um, the Big Ten took that over the last two years, and then now the Big 12 is back on top uh, with its current mem- current membership. So, um, yeah, even adding the new teams, you know, it it uh, it should be a, it's going to be a very strong conference. You know, uh, just you just look at the teams this year. You know, obviously Houston. Uh, you know, they've just been hurt by by unfortunate injuries, but uh, up to that point, they were one of the best teams in the country. Uh, Cincinnati, you know, has, has actually, you know, been all right this year. They have, you know, a, a coaching situ- new coach situation, but they've, you know, they've been decent this year. UCF has actually been pretty good. I think they're kind of the team that I thought, eh, you know, they're probably not going to contribute much to the league, but they've actually been pretty solid this year. They're ranked 53rd in my system. Um, so, uh, so it, it definitely looks promising uh, for the big 12 going forward. As long as, you know, those kind of, these kind of non-traditional programs that have risen to the top, like Baylor and Texas tech, if they continue to be pretty good, like, that league's going to be really strong by the time BYU arrives. Ken, I know we've asked you this before, but uh, for some of our newer listeners, we want to discuss your relationship with the NCAA and how you got involved with your metric in helping them determine the NCAA tournament team. So uh, first and foremost, what type of interaction do you have with the selection committee uh, at a time like this leading up through March? Well, it really just consists of them uh, using my data, like like anybody else does. You know, they they go to my website and uh, and print it out and put. You know, somehow they have some way to put the data into their uh, um, what they call their team sheets or the, you know the the pages that all of the committee members get to kind of analyze teams. So, um, so that's really how that works. Uh, you know, my my interaction with them really started you know four or five years ago when they were trying to look to uh, to replace the RPI. You know, they invited a, a few uh, of us analytics guys to Indianapolis to uh, kind of chat with them and uh, maybe give them some uh, advice on on how, how they should move going forward. And um, you know, ultimately, they elected to use the net ratings, which um, was kind of their own concoction, but is, as it turns out, is very similar to my ratings. Um, so they primarily rely on the net, but they do have these other systems, uh, including mine, that that they use in the room. And uh, and you know, it's obviously an honor uh, to, to, to be considered, you know, useful enough to be a part of that process. <laughs> <laughs> Don't sell yourself short. Also, RPI still exists in several other sports, and frankly, we're tired of it, like with uh, women's basketball <laughs> and women's volleyball and some other things. So if you want to make a Ken Pomeroy Index to help push that out, we're supporting that as well. Yeah, you know, the women's game, I think, did go away from the RPI now, and they are using the net. Um, but you're right. There's no, yeah. Outside of uh, basketball, everybody still uses the RPI or something similar. I think hockey uses something a little bit different, but, um, 
so I do, you know, people, uh, you know, they kind of rag on the net sometimes and, and, you know, there could definitely be a better system to select postseason participants, but I do give the basketball side credit for, for finally moving away from the RPI. I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, it was invented in 1981 and it was, it actually was really useful back then. You know, there wasn't a lot of computing power and things like that, but obviously society has advanced and, uh, it was, it was time to move on to something more useful. You, you know, Ken, I, I'm curious We're and we're already seeing this now, even in the West coast conference, you know, some games have been postponed due to, to COVID issues. A lot of, of games in the big 12 have been postponed a couple more, even this morning. I, I'm, I'm curious, how do things change for you in terms of the data and whatnot when you're, and obviously there's still plenty of time for all of this to catch up and maybe all the games do get played, but how, and how much does that change what you do and the data that is there uh, when you may have such a, such a difference between the number of games this team plays versus another and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's not such a big deal in that respect. You know, uh, my system is just going to look at the games that were played and, and rate teams based off of that. So it's not super concerned about, uh, you know, double round robin conference standings or anything like that. You know, just say, hey, who did you play and how good are those teams and how did you do? Where it really becomes a problem and it's starting to become a problem is that, you know, the games that aren't canceled, uh, you know, players are out. Sometimes key players are out. And just, it just seems like from game to game, you know, it's rare to find a game right now where both teams have a, a full complement of players playing. And um, my system is not sophisticated enough to say, okay, well, you know, the third best player for this team is out and the second and fourth best players for this other team are out. And let's, you know, make a new prediction based on that. Like, it's just too hard to kind of, you know, aggregate all that information for 358 teams. So, so that's the area where it, it, you know, I think it, it impacts the system, makes it, you know, perhaps a, a little bit less accurate for some of these teams where we just, you know, we just don't know who played in which game and, and how that might've affected a, a team's performance. Ken, it's great to catch up with you. We hope to see you in the Marriott Center soon. I'm sure you'll make your way down for uh, some of these top-tier West Coast Conference games. We'll save you a seat, man. All right, appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you guys. The best of BYU Sports Nation. We'll be right back.